Romans chapter 12. We're in the middle of this vision series that we started last week, a four-week series, kind of uh, digging into who we're called to be as the specifically York Alliance local expression of the church. Uh, what's, what's God called us into and what's it look like for us to live that out? And so uh, this statement that is in front of you is the statement that we really dug into in January. It's kind of like a mission or a, a motto, kind of a big picture statement, all of Jesus for the whole person, for the whole world. And so uh, we want to keep in front of us, kind of out on the horizon, that idea that we we want the fullness of Jesus, all that he is, uh, his power and his strength, his goodness and his love. We want to receive all of that for the whole person, not just for our spiritual lives, but for our emotional lives, our relationships, our physical lives, that we, we have all of Jesus for the whole person, And that's the message that we take to the whole world. Whether that's across the street or across the globe, we take all of Jesus for the whole person to the whole world. But that's kind of short on specifics as to how we do that. And so that's where our vision statement comes in. And so this statement that's in front of you, I'm going to ask you to uh, read it with me as we declare together this vision that God's put in front of us. Would you read together? Oh, not that one. There we go. That's the one. Would you read that together with me? We pursue the transformational love of Jesus and seek to build communities that share this love with all people. So hopefully as you think about that first statement, all of Jesus for the whole person for the whole world, this starts to put some flesh on it. We're going to do that by pursuing the transformational love of Jesus and seeking to build communities that share this love with all people. So together, that's the specific way we're going to step into it. So would you read with me one more time? We'll get it into uh, that deep part of our brain reading together. We pursue the transformational love of Jesus and seek to build communities that share this love with all people. So the goal of this four-week series is basically to take that apart, uh, one part at a time, and look at what the implications are. What's that mean for us? If we're to be these people, what's it look like for us to do that? So we took the first two words last week, we pursue, and what we said together, uh, maybe in a way that was uh, uncomfortable for some of you, was we really long for York Alliance to be a place where it's difficult to call yourself a Christian without pursuing whole life transformation of Jesus, uh, without him changing us from the bottom to the top, from the beginning to the end, in every area of our life. And and as I say that, I want to admit up front that there are wide swaths of Christian history where that sentence doesn't even make any sense. That um, if you called yourself a Christian, you were by definition signing up for whole life discipleship. That was the way of Christ. That's what it meant to follow Jesus. But what we said is whether you agree or not with the sentiment that we all understand that there are people for whom Christian is just a name. It's a checkbox on a survey. And we also recognize we are just broken enough to be those people. And we have to be very aware of that that it could very easily get for us to be a place where Christian is just the name by which we go, not the one whom we follow. In fact, um, statistics would say, particularly in the white evangelical church, that there's a much stronger correlation to being called Christian and your political party than there is to being called Christian and the way that you live your life, which is a wacky idea that we need to push far away from. And so the idea is whichever political party you want to jump into, that's fine. But Christian means little Christ, those who are seeking to be like him. And so we want to be people who with every intention, with intentionality, which is what we talked about last week, making every effort, 
We want to be people whose lives line up with Christ. And so with that said, we're going to move to that next phrase, the transformational love of Jesus. And we're going to recognize that um, this is a mystery. There's a part of this that's our part. And maybe for some of you that was a new thing or something that we need to kind of recenter and recognize. We need to have a place in this. We need to step forward. But we also equally need to recognize that the real actor in spiritual transformation is not our effort, but the Holy Spirit's work. That the transformational love of Jesus is what really changes us. And so to do that, we're going to look at a famous set of verses, just a couplet. It's at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, and Romans chapter 12 is the, the hinge point in the book of Romans. We'll talk about that in just a second, but it's, it's the turning point. And Paul is going to summarize, after all that he said, uh, the, his argument that he's going to make through the rest of the book, and he's going to do that in just two short verses. And in those verses, I want us to, uh, to listen to the heart of God for us. And so uh, Cindy Bowman is here somewhere, I think. There she is. All right. Uh, so Cindy's going to read for us uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. However you listen best, would you listen to the Apostle Paul speaking these words over us? Good morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. Thank you, Cindy. As we just sit in that truth, would you just close your eyes and rest for a moment? Recognize the love of Jesus that has invited us in, the call of Jesus to be transformed by his love. And now, Lord, as we turn our hearts to your word, would you meet us in grace? Would you speak your words to us and would you form our lives, our hearts, our emotions, our desires around your truth? But give to us longings that line up with your spirit. Lord, I bring whatever I have to the table, my preparation and my ability, and I submit it to you. And I ask that out of love for us and by grace, you would allow all the words that come from my flesh to fall to the ground and be forgotten. But instead, the words that come from your spirit, God, they would penetrate our hearts and change us. Amen. God, would, would you open us up to the possibility that you want to do something new in us this morning? Would you break down any wall that would stand in the way or any distraction be eliminated in Jesus' name? And instead, that we would be able to hear your truth and respond. And so do this in us, Jesus, we pray. In your name. Amen. Amen. So it's only two little verses, but in those two little verses, there's a wealth. And so what I want to do is to talk about uh, what transformation looks like. So we're going to first look at where it starts. Where's transformation begin? 
Um, how does transformation work? And then finally, what, what does it generate? What comes with it? So uh, where does it begin? Where does it start? Uh, how does it work? And what does it generate? Those are the three things that are all right there in the text. And so I'm going to literally just walk you through word for word as we uh, walk through Romans 12 this morning. So Paul starts out this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Most of you have a note that says that that's actually brothers and sisters. That's the uh, general word for brothers. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now, Bible study 101 is when you get to therefore, you ask the question, what's the therefore there? For, right? So what's the therefore, therefore? That's vitally important because it's, it's referencing something we often pick up right in the middle of a letter, right in the middle of a strain of thought. And so it's important to say, okay, what's the therefore, therefore? What's Paul referencing? And theologians are pretty well agreed that he's not referencing just uh, what's immediately before this in Romans chapter 11 or even the argument of, of the entirety of Romans chapter 11, but he's really referencing chapters 1 through 11, that he's uh, coming to this hinge point in the book and he's saying, based on everything that I just said, based on the, the 11 chapters beforehand, um, now move forward in a different kind of way. Now, I, I wish I had time to outline all 11 chapters for you. That would be great fun, but it would take us way too long. So I will commend the reading of uh, Romans 1 through 11 to you. Um, now, let's give you a brief summary. What Paul says in Romans 1 through 11 is, you are broken and sinful, and that's true of you, whether you are just an average person or whether you're God's people. That, um, that there's something in us, inherent in us, that turns away from God and seeks, when left to our own devices, to glorify the created rather than the creator. And we are constantly doing those things, even the things that look good on the outside, for wrong motives inside so that none of us would be righteous, that, that none of us are capable of righteousness on our own. And in the midst of that brokenness, God sends Jesus as both a sacrifice for our sins and the one who would change our hearts from the inside out so that we would enter into what Jesus called the kingdom of the heavens or the kingdom of God. That we would not just have eternal hope, but we would have a temporal hope that goes with that. And so he's reminding us, for instance, that um, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That the love of God can't be separated from those of us who are in Christ. That uh, the love of Jesus overflows to us based not on us, but based solely on him. So you could summarize all of those 11 chapters as saying, that's the heart of the gospel. We talked last week about a, a robust gospel, not just a God forgives your sin and you don't have to do anything, but a robust gospel that says you're invited into a new way of life. So you could summarize Romans 1 to 11 by calling it the gospel. We get to the end of Romans chapter 11 and Paul's just on a roll. Like it's kind of fun to read it straight through because you get to the end of 11 and he's just, he's just going and he gets to the end and it's like, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. <sighs> and then Romans 12. Therefore, brothers, therefore, based on all of that stuff, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, because of the gospel, there's going to be a, a, a call that Paul's going to make to us but that little phrase, by the mercies of God, need to remind us that he's not saying, here's a bar that you need to jump over. Or here's a, a duty that you need to conform yourself to or a standard that you need to line up against. 
What he's saying is the mercies of God have been given to you. Jesus moved on your behalf and he moved toward you. And now you're invited to respond to him. So what what Jesus called it was the telos. That's a Greek word that often gets translated um, uh, mature or perfect or complete. But for Jesus, the telos was like this uh, this life, uh, what, what he called the abundant life that was out in front of us. And what he was inviting us into was a life of pursuing that telos. So that telos would be out in front of us and we would organize our lives around the pursuit of Christ. So when Paul says uh, that, that, uh, that it's by the mercies of God that you're invited in, he's, he's saying, be really careful to understand this is not some duty that you're called to or some bar that you have to jump over, but there's an invitation into a new kind of life. So, so I want to say it this way. Guilt and duty will never change us. Only the love of Jesus can change us. What Paul's saying is not, hear me really carefully, Jesus did all this stuff for you, therefore you need to pay him back. That will burn out by the middle of the week. What he's saying is, Jesus did all of this for you so you can know how much he loves you. Let that love compel you by the mercies of God. And then he says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, um, if you were sitting there in first century Rome and someone was reading Paul's letter to you, you would be uh, sitting probably in a group setting. Somebody would be reading the letter. They would have gotten to Romans chapter 12 and you would hear Paul say, by the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And if you were kind of like half paying attention and half not paying attention, you'd be like, huh? Or, Or probably there was somebody in the back who kind of snickered a little bit and was like, Paul's getting older. He's getting a little confused. Like he just can't put his word. Because living and sacrifice don't go together, right? Like that's not the way those words work. Like we live in a world where sacrifice is like, I, I, I didn't eat ice cream last night and I drove the speed limit on the way here because I really want to try to be better. I'm sacrificing. That's not the kind of sacrifice they were talking about. Sa- this, is, this is the first century Jewish temple culture. Sacrifice meant blood and death. That's what sacrifice meant. So when they hear sacrifice, they're hearing there's some kind of an animal that's being killed in my place in order to cover over something or other. So it's either covering over my sinfulness or my disease or some of the things that happened for me or to me, uh, the animal is being killed on my behalf. Sacrifice means dead things. So living sacrifice don't work together because they're saying, Paul, if you're alive, you're not a sacrifice. And if you're a sacrifice, you're not alive, except for one. Paul's not referencing just any sacrifice. He's referencing the fact that there was one sacrifice throughout history that was both an effective sacrifice and still lives. And so he's immediately saying to them, not what we, what we think, um, how do I submit my life, my life so that I can have the life of Christ live through me? He's, he's not saying that. He's immediately saying, this is about Jesus. So they would immediately think, after they snickered, oh wait, he's talking about Jesus. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. So in some way, enter into the way that Jesus sacrificed his life for you and yet still lives. In some way, you and I are called to enter into that. So he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable, or holy and pleasing, depending on your translation. That is also temple language. Um, We tend to think of the word holy as uh, sinless or righteous, uh, and those are outflows of the heart of holy, but holy is really not about sinless and righteous. We talked about this a couple months ago. uh, holy, Holy is really about being set aside for a specific purpose. So we use the example of my toothbrush. My toothbrush, and hopefully yours, if you're a a normal, moral person, um, your toothbrush is the most holy thing in your house. It, it, It is set aside for a singular purpose, and if it is used for any other purpose other than that, it is defiled and must be gotten rid of, right? So if your toothbrush is used for cleaning the toilet, or the grout in the shower, or brushing your dog's ear, or something like that, whatever it is, whatever your toothbrush, if your toothbrush is taken by any other human being in the house and put into their mouth instead of your mouth, it is now defiled, and it may not be able to be used. And and I'm, I'm not saying that as a judgment, I'm just simply saying, if someone in my house takes my toothbrush and uses that toothbrush, it is defiled, and I now need to go get another toothbrush. Holy does not mean it's expensive or hard to get. I can go to Walmart, it's fine. But it's holy in that it has a specific purpose. It goes in my mouth, and that's it. And so it has such a narrow purpose, it's set for that specific thing. That's what Paul's saying. You're now a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You are set aside for a purpose. Now, this is where we get into trouble because we're reading two verses out of the entire book. Because if you had been reading the whole book, you would immediately in your head go back to Romans chapter 6. In fact, if you write in your Bible, you should write down beside verse 1, Romans 6. Because Romans 6 is where Paul unpacks that entire thing. So what he says in Romans chapter 6 is that Jesus has died on our behalf. And so when we are baptized into the death of Christ, the language that Paul uses is that we are now dead to sin and alive to Christ. So, so Paul's logic then goes to every member of our body, every part of us that was formerly used for unrighteous is now to be used for the honor and the glory of God. So all of our, whether whether it's our hands or our feet or our eyes or our ears, whatever it was that was used for unrighteousness is now to be used for righteousness. It's now holy. It's now set aside for a specific purpose. And so what he's saying is, just like Jesus, you and I are to die with him. And as we die with him, our life is now holy, set aside completely for his purposes. So, so what's happening here is there's this parallel that Paul's trying to draw so that you and I would see what he's calling us into. He's, he's calling us into a holy life that's set aside for a specific purpose. Now, I, I want to note before we go on that arguably Paul is the greatest intellect that Christianity has ever known. If there was to be one person throughout Christian history who would say, what what needs to happen is that you develop your mind fully for the glory of God, Paul would be the one to say that. And yet Paul's argument here is not primarily mind-related. I know we're going to get to a mind verse in just a second, but what Paul's referencing is Romans chapter 6, which is a full body transformation. He's not just talking about believing something or understanding something. He's talking about living and experiencing something fully with literally every member of our body. Your finger used to sin, now your finger is used for righteousness. Your eyes used to sin, now your eyes are used for righteousness. 
So what he's saying is there's this whole life transformation. Jamie Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, uh, makes a a point that's really helpful with this. Um, He says this, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. So Paul says, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercy of God, because of how much he loves you, offer your bodies, the totality of yourself, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, set aside for him. This is your spiritual act of worship. And the immediate question should be, all right, Paul, how? How do I do that? What's what's that look like? Well, let's go on to verse two. He says, there's two different ways that we change. First, do not be conformed to this world, or some of your translations will say to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So Paul says there's two ways that we change. One of them is conformation. And conformation uh, can be summarized as an, an outside-in kind of change. So all the stuff that's around us, everything in the culture around us, everything in the world around us, impacts us, and we start to change because of those things in the world around us. So that was last week as we talked about unintentional spiritual formation. What Paul's saying is whether you intend it or not, the the world is changing you. The world's impacting you. And so this goes from the silly to the serious. There's all kinds of ways that you can uh, see the fact that the world's impacting us. So for instance, from the silly perspective, um, all fashion trends are based on the, the pattern of the world. There, there's a reason why as I look around, I don't see anybody wearing tight bell bottoms and tie-dye. But 40 years ago, you'd be wearing tight bell bottoms and tie-dye. You're just not maybe 50 years ago, whatever it was. Um, it, but, but that's not what you're wearing today. But um, you're doing that because there's a pattern of the world around you that's impacting you. Uh, the, the way that we have uh, trends in technology, there's certain phones that you want, we talked about last week, or computers, or watches, or whatever the thing is, uh, th- those are impacted by the pattern of the world. Hairstyles are impacted by the pattern of the world. That's why so many of you are bald and beautiful just like me. Uh, just kidding, I just can't grow any hair. It's just the way it is. That's the way it goes. So all of this stuff um, is impacted by the pattern of the world. But it also goes to the serious. It's not just the silly stuff. Paul says, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world because the pattern of the world is going to teach you things like, how do you measure success and what does success look like? How do you raise your kids? What's a good family? Uh, How do you value the people around you? How do you yourself attain identity and value in the world? Those are all things that are spoken into by the pattern of the world. And Paul says, be really careful. Don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So he says the opposite of confirmation, which is an outside-in change, is transformation, which is an inside-out change. And so he says that there's a change of essence that's brought to us by us placing ourselves in position to be changed by Jesus, but the, the love of Jesus begins to transform us, that he uh, begins to change us from the inside out. But what's fascinating is Paul uses the same grammatical constructive for both of them. So we said last week that transformation, inside out transformation is intentional. There's certain things that we do to put ourselves in position to be transformed. But Paul just said, 
Don't be conformed, passive, you receive confirmation, changing you from the outside in, but instead be transformed. Again, passive, receiving the transforming work of Jesus. So what's going on with that? Well, the image is maybe best illustrated by a catcher squatting down behind home plate, getting ready to receive a pitch. So what's happening is the catcher has to move over into position, get into that position, but that's all the work that the catcher has to do. Put the glove up and get ready to receive the pitch. All of the work is happening at the pitcher's mound, and all the catcher's doing is receiving it. But if the catcher doesn't get out of the dugout, that pitch is going right past, right? Like the, 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 the catcher has to position themselves in the right spot. Otherwise, the pitch isn't coming to them. The pitch is coming somewhere else. And so that work of stepping into the, the make every effort, the intentionality of uh, spiritual formation is us basically grabbing the glove, getting out of the dugout, and moving behind the, the home plate. And then we're able to receive that which comes in. So God is doing the work of transformation in us. The love of Jesus is transforming us. We're positioning ourselves to receive the love of Jesus that's given to us. So I want to give you another quote, Willard for the win. You know you need a good Willard quote. Um, and, and as we get to Willard, let me just say, this is a quote from the book, The Great Omission. And um, you hear me quote Willard a lot. And some of you, if you started to read some of Willard's most famous stuff, it's really dense, and I know you're going to read for a little bit and be like, what in the world? Like, I, If you'd like to get a sense of uh, who, what Willard's all about, this, this book, The Great Omission, is the easiest book that he wrote to read. That doesn't mean it's easy. It's just easier than his other stuff. And it's, uh, it's in real bite-sized chunks. I read The Great Omission once a year, January, every year. I go back and reread it, just kind of recenter myself in the idea of spiritual formation. It's an easy one to pick up. So this is what Willard says. The genius of the moral teachings of Jesus and his first students was his insistence that you cannot keep the law by trying not to break the law. That will only make a Pharisee of you and sink you into layers of hypocrisy. Instead, you have to be transformed in the functions of the soul so that the deeds of the law are a natural outflow of who you have become. This is spiritual formation in the Christian way. Okay, now let me unpack that because I told you it was easy, but not that easy. So it's, it's still kind of dense. What he says is, if you're, if you're focused on sin and your goal is trying not to sin, what's going to happen is one of two things. Most likely, you are going to try really hard not to sin, and at some point in time, your willpower is going to give out and you're going to fall into sin anyway. You're focused really hard on it and you end up, you know, you just like whatever. You get to the end of yourself. So maybe that's a minute or maybe that's a month, but at the end of that time, you, you, you fall into that sin. So that may happen. Or maybe even worse, you actually hold your resolve. You don't sin. And so instead of committing that sin, now the sin of self-righteousness creeps in because you're so good at not sinning. And now you become very impressed with yourself, particularly in comparison to all those other people who can't seem to get it right like you, right? And so now you've moved from one sin into another, maybe more insidious kind of sin. And so now uh, you, you have sin one way or another. So what Willard says is, uh, in, instead you have to be transformed in the functions of the soul so that the deeds of the law are a natural outflow of who you have become. What Will is saying is we need to be the kind of people who over time, it becomes easier for us to follow Jesus 
than not to follow Jesus. It becomes easier for us to live in the way of Christ than to not live in the way of Christ. Uh, the way I uh, often say it is, we're the kind of people for whom loving enemies is easier than hating enemies. Not because it's easy to love enemies, but because to hate anyone would be so much more difficult than that. So, so the way Willard's talking about it is that God, over time, rewires us and begins to change us. This is the transformation of Jesus from the inside out, where we begin to walk in his way. So again, if you write in your Bible beside verse 2, I would write Galatians 5. So at the end of Galatians 5, there's uh, two lists that Paul makes. One of them are lists of the sins of the flesh. You can read through. It's a really depressing list that you'll probably find, like me, all too familiar. You read through, you're like, yep, 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 check, 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 right? So that's the the deeds of the flesh. And then you have the fruit of the Spirit, one that you've probably memorized, some of you at some point in time, so love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, all those things. So those are all listed. But what's fascinating about Galatians 5 is that Paul does not say, avoid the sins of the flesh, And he does not say, pursue the fruit of the Spirit. He says, walk in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. And if you do, the fruit of the Spirit will come out of you. And if you don't, the deeds of the flesh will come out of you. So what he's saying is that the functions of the soul start to change so that the deeds of the law are the natural outflow. I start to be changed by walking with the Spirit so that love and joy and peace are the natural outflow of my life. And the deeds of the flesh are an unthinkable outflow of my life. Why? Because I'm in step with the Spirit. And as I walk with the Spirit, the things of the flesh won't come out. It makes perfect sense, but hopefully there's a bunch of you saying, okay, but, right? So so what's it generate in us? Well, this this is the way Paul says it, so let's go to the end of uh, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So Paul says, what this generates is you receiving the mind of Christ, knowing what God would call you to do, what his will is, and being able to walk in that will. That sounds deceptively simple, doesn't it? Like, like all I do is, so, so hold on, I, I recognize the mercy of God, I recognize the gospel because of all that's before, I recognize the gospel, and so I, I offer my life fully submitted to Jesus as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, and as I do that, he's going to transform me from the inside out, I will have the mind of Christ, and I'll be able to walk into all the things he calls me to do, um, the fruit of the Spirit will just naturally flow out of me. Which sounds great, but there should be a whole bunch of you like me that are saying, um, it hasn't been that easy for me. Like, what's, what's the process here? Like, how does that, how does that walk? So, I, so I'm going to show you the, um, the intentional spiritual formation model. We looked at this last week. And uh, that high control section at the top, teaching, community, and practice, um, if we stick with that metaphor, those are the ways we get out of the dugout and get behind the plate. Right? So through teaching, through community, through practice, I get behind the plate and I get ready to receive the pitch. Now remember, uh, you can't force the pitch. All you can do is get behind the plate. 
So teaching community and practice just move us behind the plate, but it's that, that kind of blob in the middle that says the Holy Spirit right in the center. That, that's the real actor here. That's the pitcher, and the, the Holy Spirit is the one who's throwing the ball in. So we can position ourselves to receive it, but the Holy Spirit is the one who's doing the work. But all of that falls within our control, not controlling the Holy Spirit, but positioning ourselves so that we would receive the outflow of the Holy Spirit who is constantly working on our behalf. But there's this line, and underneath the line, it says low control over time through the hard knocks of life. Here's the challenge. This thing that Paul's saying in these two verses in Romans chapter 12 often happens over a lifetime, not over a moment. This is something that God's doing in us, and that doing is happening again and again and again over time, and the only accelerator is suffering. The only thing that moves it forward is the hard knocks of life. That, that journey just takes time. And so when we come before God and we say, I, I'm going to line myself up with you. I, I long for everything that you have for me. I, I'm offering my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. What will happen is that now and then there'll be what I would maybe call breakthrough moments. So there are times by the Spirit where he generates these breakthroughs, where he just does something that should have taken a long time and is just done in an instant. So for me, for example, um, I, I knew that I had come to faith because before I started following Jesus, I had a filthy mouth. Like really, like I, I used words all the time that I can't, I shudder to think of right now. Like I just, I, I, I can't even force myself to say the words that I used all the time then. And then all of a sudden I came to faith and it just stopped immediately. I, I have no idea why. I, I couldn't even, like, I couldn't try to say them. It was like, uh, it, it was like it felt foreign coming out of my mouth to say words that just like the day before I had used all the time. Now, you know why that was so remarkable? Because that was the only thing that changed. <laughs> like, there was a lot of other stuff. And I, I remember saying to God, like, I could have worked on the language for a while. Couldn't you have taken that thing or that thing or that thing? Like, there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Like, why? Well, I don't know. God took that one thing. In a breakthrough, he took that one thing. And all this other stuff has been a long part of the journey. Breakthrough moves of the Spirit tend to happen in, uh, in forms of healing. So when God heals sometimes our physical body or sometimes emotional wounds of the past or addictions that we're tied to, God breaks through and in an instant, he does that work. Now, he doesn't always do that, but there are times where God does that in, a, in an instant, but most of the time, God does not work in breakthrough moments. Most of the time, God works in maybe what you would call a process. And over a long period of time, through suffering, change starts to happen. And those are not usually healing things as much as they are character things. So if, maybe you've had this experience. If you haven't, stick around here for a while because you would experience it at some point. That You've been able to pray with somebody or see somebody prayed over where God just changed something immediately. One of those breakthrough moments happened. And they're glorious and beautiful and we celebrate them. They're, they're great. But it's very rare for someone to walk to the altar and you recognize that person walking to the altar is really arrogant and prideful and self-focused and then they kneel down and they pray and then they stand up and they're just the most loving, humble, others-focused person ever. Like, that just doesn't happen. I, I'm not saying God can't do it, 
I'm just saying that that's a, a character thing that tends to happen over a long period of time. Very rarely, like, get up from the altar and that's changed immediately. Instead, what happens is my desire to change starts and then a long process unfolds from there. Which is why for most of us, if, you can, if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you can look back a year or five years or 10 years and you can see movement Whereas if you look back a day or a week, maybe you can't. And in the immediate, some of those uh, change of mind and change of desires, they, they take painfully long. But what's generated is over a long period of time, Christ-likeness. You start to see more and more of Jesus in you. And this happens because you are intentional, we pursue but much more so because Jesus transforms. So I don't know what the percentages are. Um, it, it, I, I can pretty well guarantee that the minority of the work falls on us and the majority of the work, the real heavy lifting falls on Jesus. I don't know if it's 30-70 or 90-10 uh, or whatever it is, but, um, but Jesus is doing the majority of the work. We're positioning ourselves. We're seeking to receive from him. So what I want you to hear between this week and last week is that you and I are intentionally invited into spiritual formation. We, we pursue, we step into it. But Jesus is the one who does the work. We get behind the plate and we try to receive. We're prepared to receive what he has for us. But the transformational love of Jesus is his work that's coming to us. So this should create two things in us. One, it should create a a real sense that prayer is truly the first work. Because the other work that you're going to try to do is not going to work unless he's the one doing the work. So if the majority of the work is the transformational love of Jesus and the small minority is you positioning yourself, prayer should be the first work, truly. We should be longing for him. But it also should create in us different postures. So our posture as we approach God should be a posture of humility and dependence, and hunger. There should be a longing for him because we know that he's the only one that can do it. So if we're called as followers of Jesus to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him, that he's gonna transform us from the inside out, then every opportunity that he may be working, we should be up on the edge of our seats. We should be waiting for him. There should be a, a, a longing, a desire, a dependence on him. So, so when we come into the potential of his presence, whether that's a Sunday morning gathering or it's a smaller gathering during the week or it's a quiet time in the, with the Lord in the morning or it's uh, alone in the car listening to worship music and praying or whatever it is, as you start to have that experience of the Holy Spirit's here with me, there should be a move to the edge of our seat and a sense of anticipation. Like I'm longing for him to do this work. There should be hunger in us. When we don't believe the transformational love of Jesus is the primary driver of our spiritual formation, our postures will instead of dependence and hunger will be arrogance and passivity. Meaning, not, not in such a, um, a nasty, arrogant way, but just a sense of like, I got this thing figured out. Like, I've been around the spiritual formation block. I've been around church for a while. I know the way this goes. I got this. And church comes and I'm just kind of doing my thing, right? Like it's just, it, it's, not, it's not passive in a, um, a, a negative attacking kind of way. It's not antagonistic. It's just like, eh, 
yeah, there's this thing that happens. The Holy Spirit comes and meets us and we worship. We do some things, whatever. Our posture starts to reflect what we truly believe, which is I got this under control. So when we come back to the transformational love of Jesus and we recognize that he's the one doing the work, it should create in us that move to the edge of our seats. Now, let, let me just be honest with you. Um, with as many of you that are here, your expression of hunger will look different for everybody. And that's okay. I'm not prescribing to you what hunger looks like. I'm simply saying that if we believe that he is the one that does the work, we should be expressing hunger. Our posture should be hunger. We should be longing for something. So for some of you, hunger is an outward expression and it's very demonstrative and there's, there's words and sounds that go with it. And there's others of you that are like, I am desperately longing and here's what desperately longing looks like. That's fine. It's, it's good. It's totally fine. Like I'm, I'm just here. That's, that's desperate for me. And that's, that's fine. I'm not prescribing to you what it looks like. I'm simply saying that if we believe that he's the one doing the work, we should be hungry. And when we have an opportunity to encounter him, there should be a movement towards him that says, I, I don't want to miss it. And so I want to ask us to respond to the transforming love of Jesus. And I want to ask us to do it in a slightly different way than normal. Um, so I, I'm, I'm just going to ask us to, first of all, set your kind of stuff to the side. Um, the worship team's going to come and they're going to get ready to lead us. And I just want to first take a minute to consider that truth to consider the idea that Jesus is the one who does this work in us. So if you just want to set yourself to the side and we're just going to cl close our eyes and meditate for just a minute and think through all that we've said. So Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercy of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. That is your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of the world, but instead be renewed, uh, by, by transformed by the renewal of your mind. And in that renewal, you will find God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so with that spoken over you, Maybe just open up your hands as a sign of uh, receiving from God, if that's something that's comfortable for you. And let's just ask that simple question. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? So just maybe uh, ask that now. You can speak it out loud or you can just uh, speak it quietly in your heart. But Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Jesus, as we sit in your presence, I'm once again amazed at both your transcendence and your imminence, that you are above all of us, the singular God, 
when we worship. And you are also with each one of us and millions of others all around the world as you speak truth into our hearts by your Spirit. And so, Jesus, we receive that from you. God, would you help us to live into that balance of making every effort to pursue while we recognize that you are the one who transforms us through your love? And would you make us eager, hungry for what you have for us? So God, open our hearts and help us to receive. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.